0: Hi, it's Deborah Pardase, the host of the Pause Pod Blast and the Pause Podcast. This next episode you're about to hear was recorded live in Los Angeles on March 24th, 2019. We want to do a special shout out to DrWise.com for making this episode possible. And here we go. Are you ready? Okay. Are you ready? Here you go. You being here is really a double value. The first is that you're taking care of yourself, that you've made time on your busy Sunday to take a breath, pause for health, and learn about your body. The second value is that you are representing other women. I say this because Pause is a podcast dedicated to focusing on women's health over 40 with a particular focus on thriving through menopause. So imagine a woman driving in a small town in this country that has maybe one OBGYN. She hasn't asked any questions about herself and she pops this podcast on, puts her little earphones in, takes a drag of her cigarette, and then she she starts hearing these voices of women that remind her of herself. Your presence and your voice and your questions are valuable. Today we're specifically focusing on the heart it's like the employee of the month every single month it works it works it works it works until it doesn't so before I bring up our guest I want to sing a song to the heart you might recognize this but think about this song if pretend you're a heart okay just go there you're a heart and you're pumping and you're beautiful and maybe undervalued maybe a little hidden I know my heart somewhere between my belly button and behind my breast but I've never seen it but I feel it and I'm singing this love song to this this heart
1: My funny
0: valentine, sweet comic valentine, you make me smile with your heart. Your looks are laughable, unphotographable,
1: yet you're my
0: favorite. Figure less than Greek Is your mouth a little weak When you open it to speak Are you smart Don't change your hair for me Not if you care for me Association says that every 80 seconds a woman dies of a stroke or a cardiovascular disease or condition now that is 80 every 80 seconds that's so scary it's beyond scary and it's so wonderful that we happen to have in our midst a doctor who can help us navigate through this statistics are one thing but this is our lives this is us So I'd like to please have a warm welcome for Dr. Dina Goldwater from UCLA. (laughs) Dina, I asked her if I can call her that. You said yes, right? Yes, please. I found Dina um, through the UCLA uh, website actually, but there's so much more to you than a website. So I'd love for you to just indulge us and let us know who you are, how you got to this position, and what lights up your life.
2: So I took a little bit of a unique path to cardiology. When I graduated from college, I thought I was gonna be a marine biologist. And I pursued that for a year. And then I decided that I really wanted to be much more involved with people instead of animals, or what I was looking at was uh, basically cellular animals. Um, And so I went back to school to get all the credits that I needed to get in order to go to medical school. Um, In medical school, I was really interested in the brain, in the development of the brain, the way the brain functions, so I ended up doing a Ph.D. in neuroscience. My Ph.D. focused on stress and the way stress affects the brain, the way stress affects memory, the way stress affects mood. Um, And then from there, when I got back into medical school after doing the Ph.D., as I was really caring for patients, it was the cardiac patients who I was really drawn to. And from my PhD and how the stress affects the brain, I also learned that stress affects the heart and the entire cardiovascular system. So I thought that there would be a way to combine my neuroscience background in stress with the um, work that I'm doing now with cardiac patients. Uh, One additional piece of training, which um, I did... After I started my first year of cardiology fellowship, um, I decided to do extra training in geriatrics. So specifically, I care for older adults with cardiovascular disease, and the training in geriatrics really enables me to have a more holistic approach to care. So I'm interested in your heart, and I'm interested in your cardiovascular system, but I'm interested in how that sits in relationship to your entire life, and I think that that's important for older adults, but it's also important for everyone, and and that's the way that I wanna practice medicine, and that's the way that I'm hoping to teach others to practice medicine. So statistics
0: are surrounding us, right? So I, I think the most compelling one that we hear is that for women over 65, cardiovascular disease is the most common disease, and it's also the most common cause of death. Can you talk about why that is and what you've seen and to support that statistic?
2: Um, I think the thing that's important about that statistic is that not enough people know it. Women don't know that, that there is such a high risk of death from cardiovascular disease. It's the number one killer of women. Um, and that is a problem that the American Heart Association has recognized, and they've really stepped up their attempts to Educate the public so every February is um, Heart every February is heart month. I think it has a more formal name, but I can't remember it right now And then there is a specific day. That's go red for women So the American Heart Association is really taking steps to reach out specifically to women to educate them And there is information there is data that says that the women are learning that the percentage of women who recognize that this is a risk for them is growing The problem is it's not seeping through fast enough, okay? So there was a recent study that was just done that shows that it was looking at young adults between the ages of 18 and 25, young adult women. Only 10% of them recognized that heart disease was the number one killer. They were able to recognize cancer. They were able to recognize breast cancer. But only 10% of these women, young women, were able to recognize it. That's a problem because... 80% 80% of cardiovascular disease is preventable, but if you're going to prevent it, you have to start when you're a kid, right? You have to start with all of the preventative techniques and all of the positive health behaviors when you're young. So the fact that we're missing out a huge portion of the population is, is a real problem that we have identified and it's starting to change.
0: So you just said 80% can be preventable mm-hmm. and you have to start when you're young. Can you speak to why the pediatric world doesn't take hold of this?
2: I can't. I don't know. Should we start picketing
0: (laughs) in front of all the pediatric
2: offices? I think that the education starts at home, right? So once you, once the women, once the mothers and grandmothers know this, you get to pass that information on. It should start in schools. It really is not pervasive in our culture, so think about the number of movies or TV shows you've seen where a man has had a heart attack, right? They're everywhere. I can think of one, uh, Jack Nicholson and Diane Keaton in Something's Gotta Give, right? He has this classic heart attack. He crutches his chest, he's sweating, he's having a hard time breathing. Cut to Keanu Reeves in the hospital leaning over him saying, sir, you've had a heart attack. I can't think of one movie where a woman has had a heart attack. We need to have this more pervasive in our culture so that people recognize it as a problem.
0: The theme of our last show was the general conversation with an OBGYN, and we talked a lot about, wow, there's so much, there's a lack of information about menopause in general, uh, in terms of what's coming out of the media towards people, but and the doctors towards people, but they themselves were not asking the right questions. So I think, to your point, if we want people to ask more questions, it has to start from a place of knowing more from their own experience. I guess I wanna jump into the next question I have for you. Mm-hmm. We could talk a lot about things to know about your body and be aware and say, wow, is this, this isn't right. What's the difference between a man and women's heart physiologically, is there a difference?
2: There are small differences. Um, so women's hearts tend to be smaller than men's, just in the, the mass of them. Also, the blood vessels throughout the whole body and the blood vessels that feed the heart itself tend to be smaller in women. The other difference is the way that um, disease can present itself. So in men, if they have a plaque in their artery, in their heart, it's this discrete plaque. You, You can see it. It's like this ball almost, or a bump. In women, it, the disease is more diffuse. It goes down the whole vessel as sort of a lumpy, bumpy, diffuse disease, which we don't see as often in men. So that's that's those are some of the major differences that I see. Another difference is the way that the diseases are presenting themselves. So for example, heart attack, the Jack Nicholson heart attack, that is classic male heart attack. Um, But heart attack symptoms are very, very different in women. Um, I can think of one patient of mine who was leaving work one day and she was feeling really, she was just feeling confused and just a little bit more lightheaded and maybe a little bit nauseous and she was like, oh, I'm fine, I'm just going to go home and nap for a minute and and then I'll be fine. So she leaves the office. She's so confused she can't get on, this was in New York, she can't get on the bus that she normally takes because she doesn't remember which bus she normally takes to go home. There was a really nice pedicab that stopped and noticed that she was a little bit confused and picked her up, dropped her off at home. Uh, So now this is, I don't know, a couple hours later. She finally calls her daughter, tells her what's going on, sounds a little bit weird on the phone, and her daughter says, I'm calling the ambulance for you. Shows up at the hospital, she's having a heart attack. So... The symptoms in women are very different. And I think that's one of the main things that we have to get across. Yes, you may have chest pain. Yes, you may have pain uh, down your left arm. But more often, it's shortness of breath, palpitations, a little bit of dizziness, nausea is super common. So just if you feel very different than you normally feel, that's something to make note of and take seriously.
0: So for those of us who don't understand the lexicon here, tell me the difference between cardiovascular disease and like what you described as a heart attack. There seems to be a whole world of cardiovascular
2: disease. What's all inside that, and then what's a heart attack? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because that's going to come up over and over. So as a cardiologist, cardiologists don't just think about the heart. They think about the entire vascular system, which includes all the arteries and veins in your body. So the ones that go down into your legs and your arms and up into your brain. And even into your lungs. So, when I talk about cardiovascular disease, I can talk about diseases of the heart, but we're also talking about diseases of the vasculature, like um, blood clots or strokes in particular. Let's talk about the difference between a stroke and a heart
0: attack. I, I, I see that we don't we use them interchangeably as lay people sometimes because we don't know the difference. So, what's the, I know they're really different, but can you explain the difference between a stroke and a heart attack?
2: A heart attack is when there is a blockage in the blood vessel that's leading to the heart and the heart is not getting enough blood, okay? So if that blockage is not opened up soon enough, then that portion of the muscle will die. A stroke is when there's a blockage of a vessel that's leading into the brain. And so um, when that blockage occurs, part of the brain isn't getting blood and the oxygen that it needs and that part of the brain can die.
0: When Dina
2: was describing
0: nausea, confusion, dizziness, disorientation, how many of you in the audience started thinking, yeah, I've had that? Show of hands. It's a pretty, I have low blood pressure. Sometimes I stand up and I'm like, whoa. Mm -hmm. That's nothing. But you're talking about a sustained. It's sustained.
2: Sustained, absolutely. Over a period of an hour, two hours? Um, Yes over an extended period of time. If if you're used to these symptoms, right, if you feel dizzy when you stand up, or if you know that if you haven't eaten in a while, you feel a little bit confused, if, if this is typical for you, then that shouldn't necessarily raise a flag for a heart attack. Right. If it's very atypical for you, then you should think a little harder about it.
0: To that point about uh, the difference between men and women, there's a question here we wrote down that uh, asked the risk factors. Uh, that are different for men and women as compared to women? Are there risk factors?
2: Are there risk factors that are different for women as compared to men for cardiovascular disease? There are. Some of them are the same and some of them are... So when we say risk factor, what I mean is that this is a thing that increases your risk for developing cardiovascular disease, so developing plaque in your arteries, developing a heart attack, developing heart failure, having a stroke. So these are things that increase your risk for those events. Um, For women in particular, things that are really important are complications during pregnancy, hypertension during pregnancy, preeclampsia gestational diabetes, those things really increase a woman's risk for disease later on in life. And I think that those questions aren't frequently asked by physicians. I'm not sure when the last time you were asked about pregnancy complications when you went to a physician. Um, Another thing that's unique for women is age at menopause. So in general, women who have a natural menopause at age 45 or younger, tend to be at higher risk for developing cardiovascular disease in the future. We don't really understand why. It clearly has something to do with estrogen, and estrogen we know has at least endogenous, or the estrogen that's naturally in your body has protective effects on your vasculature, all the arteries and the veins in your body. Um, And as that goes away, your vasculature changes. So earlier menopause is equivalent to increased risk for cardiovascular disease. Other things that are really important to know about are the things that are also risk factors for men. So your cholesterol panel, your LDL, which is your bad cholesterol, or your HDL, which is your good cholesterol. It's important for you to know your BMI. This is a measure of your, um, it's called body mass index. It's a ratio of your height to your weight. and we know that certain BMIs are, are better than others. It's a measure of, of uh, total body health. Blood pressure is really important thing for everyone to be aware of. And glucose, how's your sugar doing? Are you at risk for diabetes? So those are the things that every time you go to the doctor, you should be thinking about. The doctor should know what your risk factors are. How many of you have
0: had tests to this effect in terms of blood tests and things like that? Good. With your GP or with a cardiologist? GPs? Yeah. Okay. If estrogen and the lack of estrogen correlated to what you're saying causes a greater risk for cardiovascular disease, Mm -hmm. let's just segue to that big elephant in the room, HRT. Mm -hmm. So hormone replacement therapy, we talked about it at our last podcast. We'll always talk about it because there's so many ways to enter into that conversation. Let's enter it through the door of a cardiologist's office.
2: So we think about medications in general as things that make you feel better or things that make you live longer. Hormone replacement therapy is something that's going to make you feel better. From a cardiovascular perspective, we don't have any data that says that it's going to make you live longer. Initial studies that came out showed that hormone replacement therapy tended to increase the risk for heart attacks and cardiovascular disease in women however new data that has come out says that there's a it's important about the timing so if you start hormone replacement therapy around menopause like in the 50 to 55 range then it does not increase risk for cardiovascular disease if you're starting it 10 years out after menopause then it does increase risk so there is a, there's this thing they call the, the timing hypothesis. That's heart attacks, right? That's coronary artery disease, plaques in the arteries. Stroke is a different story. It does seem, even though the risk of stroke is very low, hormone replacement therapy does increase your risk for stroke. So the risk is really low. The increased risk is significant, but also small. Something to keep track of and to think about and talk about with your doctor when you're thinking about starting hormone replacement therapy. And the other thing that we know it increases the risk for is blood clots, in the specifically in the legs. I'm going to feed a question into you. So I'm
0: at OBGYN's office. We decide, yeah, we're going to try some kind of HRT program. Is she going to ask me about my cardio history with my
2: family. That's what I wanted to say. Thank you very much. (laughs) So I don't know if your OBGYN will ask you, if you come to me as a cardiologist and you say, I'm thinking about starting hormone replacement therapy, I'm gonna check your risk factors. I'm gonna talk to you about your complications during pregnancy. We're gonna talk about your other numbers, your BMI, your cholesterol. We're gonna talk about your blood pressure. Gonna learn about your family history, smoking history, All of these things that play a role that may make me encourage you to not go on hormone replacement therapy based on your risks. Hmm. Or say, yes, I think that for a limited amount of time, this is a safe thing for you. We can also, for women who are very symptomatic and who do want to go on hormone replacement therapy who are otherwise also somewhat high risk for cardiovascular disease, we may start a statin or start other medication to lower risk at the same time in order to, to counterbalance the risk a little bit. There's no data for that, but um, it's something that we think about.
0: Have you ever had a patient that you look at and you say, wow, you've been taking hormones? Like, you could tell because, in, in a bad way, like, it, if it, you, because of your hormone therapy, this is your condition with your heart right now.
2: Because most of my patients are over 80, the majority of them are no longer taking hormone replacement therapy. Any results because they did? No. Okay, that's interesting. So, even if they, so,
0: with your population, they could have had 10 years in their, in their 50, like, 55 to 65, yeah. stopped, and you see them at 80 and you don't see any
2: negative effects. It's hard at that point, it's hard to say yeah. what
0: is causing what,
2: yeah. um, so I don't know.
0: We're sitting here, we're hearing things about how rough things can be mm-hmm. with your heart. One in four of us might not be here next year. That's a lot of people in this room, or maybe in 80 seconds someone's going to die. I hope that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> but tell us a little bit about... We can do it together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got the RN, you got the doctor, I'll <laughs> sing to you while you die. Um, So there's this is a whole conversation I'm excited to have with you and I want to break it down bit by bit Uh, Very young age you're starting to say I want to take care of my heart Mm -hmm. But let's just look at the population in this room and the population of people who listen to pause are women over 40 who are really really wanting to, to, to Become educated and do stuff so that they don't see you when they're 80 So give us a breakdown of ways. We can just be good to our hearts.
2: I thought about another risk factor that I wanted to <gasps> Please, talk about. Please, this is dynamic. This is live radio. <laughs> okay, go! So, uh, there are a couple other risk factors that I really want to talk about, and then we will definitely yes. get to prevention. Okay, so um, one is depression. Depression is a huge risk factor for cardiovascular disease. There is a relationship there that we don't fully understand. But people who are depressed have a higher risk of having cardiovascular disease. And people who have cardiovascular disease are at a higher risk for developing depression. So there is some relationship. We don't fully know the biology of it. But it is something that's really important to recognize. Along those same lines, life stress Early life stress, ongoing life stress, if there's no way to, if you're experiencing these significant stressors and you don't have a way to calm them down, that definitely is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease as well. And finally, one to talk about is sleep. Sleep is incredibly important and um, and we know that patients who are not getting restful sleep are at higher risk for disease as well. So there are are these things besides the weight and the cholesterol and the blood pressure that aren't necessarily talked about all that often that I think really need to be part of the conversation. Um, In my clinic, I definitely talk about depression and ask about depression all of the time. Um, I have a patient who came in who came to me after she had a stent placed in her carotid artery. So she had a blockage in the main artery that was going up to her brain. Um, How did she
0: find out about that?
2: um, She found out about it because she was having symptoms of dizziness. And one of the doctors that she went to did a carotid ultrasound and found it. So... So she had the stent, and then she came to me. And the, the complaints that she had when she came to me, she was saying that she was not exercising as much. She has these two dogs. She really likes to go down to the beach with her dogs and walk around, but it's a big staircase down to the beach, so she would feel short of breath on the way back up. Um, and she was wondering if that was related to her heart. It could be. But the other things that she was telling me about, she was like, well, I'm tired all the time. I'm really not exercising. Uh, My mood is down. I'm not working. So it definitely seemed, and she was gaining weight as well. So it definitely seemed that there was a component of depression, whether or not there was also a component of cardiovascular disease. We did some stress testing. She did have disease in her coronary arteries, and we did send her for intervention. Even after the intervention, she was still feeling some of the symptoms. She didn't have the energy. She couldn't get up and go. And we really started focusing on her depression. Mm. And once that was addressed, she started work again. She was on a medication. She was seeing a therapist. Energy came back up, lost weight, symptoms resolved. So it's important to address everything simultaneously, holistic approach to care. I love a happy ending, but if she, if she wasn't a squeaky wheel, and if she didn't
0: get her carotid artery checked, she probably wouldn't have been alive to see you, right? I mean, that's a pretty serious condition.
2: Yes. Yeah, she she um, she definitely is a unique case, for sure, based on her disease, yeah. Uh,
0: antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Tell me the correlation between, have there been any studies?
2: Mm-hmm. Talk to me. Um, there are some studies that show that people who have cardiovascular disease and depression, if you treat their depression, then it improves outcomes. It improves their quality of life. Um, I don't know about the survival outcome, but it definitely improves outcomes. Some studies are negative, but uh, you have to make sure that the effect is appropriate. So sometimes you take a medication for depression and you don't actually have relief of that depression. It has to be accompanied by improvement in mood. It's not just taking the medication that's going to cause the benefit. So some of the studies, the patients weren't actually showing an improvement in mood. And no indications that the actual medicine itself, that the antip has It's medicine. not the actual medicine itself. So, While we don't know the biology between the link between depression and cardiovascular disease, there are um, behavioral effects of depression that are very common. So people become more sedentary. Their appetite changes, their food intake changes. It's harder to exercise. So all of these things that are good in order to benefit your cardiovascular health when patients are depressed, they're not doing those things anymore. So even if it's not a a biology and inflammation or something inside the body, it is a behavior effect for sure. So those are the things that need to be addressed.
0: For those of you listening to this podcast, I hope you're feeling that you are worth the time. Some people don't want to be a squeaky wheel, but if you're not a squeaky wheel, you're not going to get the care you need. Um, Find words for how you're feeling. And if it doesn't. if it persists, find more words, right? Mm-hmm. You gotta get out there. You gotta be an advocate for yourself. It's super important. If one in four of us are still dying from this, we need to figure out a way to obviously build community and learn more and more and more, but also figure out how to keep a journal, figure out if it's something that's persistent and then, and then go and, and get help. So uh, when Dean and I were talking about uh, ways to uh, prevent cardiovascular disease, we, we had the three big ones, You know, the, the health, what you eat, how you exercise, and the community you, you keep to, to keep your stress level down. And those are the big three. Can you speak to those as specifically as you can? Um, go from, we, because we know the, the general idea sounds so great, but have you been able to kind of come and winnow it down to some specific really good things that we might not know that we need to do or things that might be easy to do that we think might be hard in one of those areas?
2: None of these things are easy, which is why they're so challenging and why so many people don't do them regularly so the things that I talk about with my patients you want to move often you want to connect deeply and eat thoughtfully those are the three best things that you can do for preventative health move often there's data that shows that if 30 minutes a day of moderate activity just go for a walk We know that even if you're sedentary up until older age, like they just did a study in patients who were over age 65 who were generally sedentary, they got them up and moving and they saw benefit. So this is not something that necessarily, it's better if you've been doing it all your life, but it's not necessarily the end of the road if you haven't been. You can start anytime and the benefits will be real. Connect deeply. Relationships, we are social animals. Relationships are really, really important. Relationships are good for loneliness. They counteract depression. Um, people who are isolated and lonely tend to have more cardiovascular disease, based on some larger studies. So, so maybe kill two birds with one stone. Go for a walk with a friend. Yep. And so, just build a community. If you don't have one. Start slow, try and connect with people. Maybe it's a church, maybe it's an exercise place, I don't know. But it is. it's really important. Also things like mindfulness. I believe in mindfulness, a technique for stress reduction. You can build a community around that as well. They exist, sp- especially here in LA, but now they are becoming much more common. Eat thoughtfully. There are a lot of studies that say, don't eat this, eat this. Everything in moderation. Try to eat more fruits and vegetables. Try to eat a little bit less protein. Avoid the sweets. And it's going to be okay. I took a deep breath.
0: Thank you, a deep breath. Um, Talk to us about those things we take a lot, those pills. We take all these supplements because we hear about them on commercials, and we read about them, and our friends are taking them. And uh, let's just focus on the heart. There's the fish oil, and there's the omega-3s, and the D3s, and, the, and the, all those other things, 3s and 4s, and, and CoQ10.
2: So this goes back to the idea of taking things that make you feel better or live longer, all right? what we know so far about things like omega-3 and d3 vitamin d they don't make you live longer Uh, and they're certainly not making you feel better you don't feel them at all so a lot of the supplements that are in the news and are are a little bit flashy i think pause before you start to take them and really think is this going to make me feel better is this gonna make me live longer? And if the answer is no, it's not worth it. How many of you
0: take supplements right now? <laughs> so we're gonna do a show on this a little bit with wrapping it into nutrition, um, because they say that most of the supplements we take, can we can get them through food. But it's a, is that
2: correct, like most of the? It is so important to get all of the vitamins through food. Our bodies are designed to get them through food, not designed to take them in pill form. Um, so if you feel like you're low in some vitamin or if you feel this urge to take extra of it, seek out the foods because I guarantee you that's going to help you get more fruits and vegetables in your diet too. So again, better way to go. Always try and get it in the food. And we'll have a chart. We're, we're working on a chart on our website that shows
0: basic foods and the correlation to vitamins. I want to end with one uh, question. Since you meet women who are, and men, uh, but let's talk about women. Women who are over eighty, and you're ha- you 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 know. I was talking with you before, and you really love these people you work with. Your population, you they delight you, and you learn something every day. It sounds so wonderful. They're so lucky to have you. If that. you were talking to them as their younger selves, what would you say to them that might you, you wish you could?
2: I would say to them to really spend time taking care of themselves. A lot of times women are very, um, they're taking care of everyone else and they're not taking care of themselves. And so they have to really focus on moving often, eating thoughtfully and connecting deeply, starting whenever they can, in childhood, in adolescence, certainly in the 20s and throughout their life. And then, you know, I would be out of a job just be a drummer, full-time. Full-time. <laughs> That's
0: great. You're so wonderful, and I can't wait to hear the questions this audience has. Yeah. Thank you so much. In the middle of every PAUSE podcast, we try to find a voice that can speak to the profound issue of the changing body after 40. and It's important for us to find voice so that women out there can hear a story that they can relate to and say, oh my God, I've been trying to find the words for that and that story, oh my God, that was me. It's a super important part of our organization, our social movement, our community, to make sure that people, if nothing else, even if they get no information whatsoever, they've heard a story that they go, wow, thank you for speaking what I can't. We found a beautiful speaker who's going to do just that for us, And I'm so happy she made the time to come across the hill to us. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm, warm welcome to Elizabeth Sampson. At this point in the pod blast, we had a live storyteller. You can hear that story in its entirety at the end of this podcast in a separate file. And now we'll move right on to the audience questions. We are all so different, and I was just speaking to a woman who was 75 and uh, just turned to me and said, "You know what? It's, it's people sh-. and she didn't mean it in a horrible way. She just said, "You know, the, the, people think too much, they fetch too much, and let's just t- tough ourselves through this. That's good And I just feel like that attitude doesn't help us either. We need to support each other. So for those of you out there who are having no symptoms, God bless, but hold the other women up so that they can feel you, you've got their backs because we, ha- we all approach this in such a different way. Our bodies are so different, and that's part of what PAUSE is all about, creating community, supporting each other, holding each other up, honoring our differences, because what really ties us together, our commonality, is this opportunity to say we are women with bodies that will always uh, sprout forth new things, maybe from your chin, maybe in your mind, but we're, we're a powerful force, and being together makes us even more powerful.
1: Thank you for doing this. This is such... A life-changing situation for me okay in November I had what doctors termed as a mini heart attack they said the troponin level in my blood was something like 0.5 on a scale of 100 so they sent me home three days after taking all the tests everything was normal they said I was good to go nothing was wrong I could go back to my normal life that didn't happen Um, I was trying to go to the gym I was on the treadmill for three and a half minutes And my heart started to hurt. And since then, it hasn't really stopped. But every cardiologist I went to, I went to three different ones. They basically said it was anxiety. Um, I needed sleep. I was um, restless because of the heart attack, the effect of it. But they were dismissive in their attitudes. You're fine, go back to work, go back to your life. But um, I persisted. I had four different cardiologists all within three months see me. And um, on Actually, two weeks ago, I was at UCLA, found a cardiologist there, um, and I was diagnosed with microvascular heart disease. Mm-hmm. I don't understand what, why the four others did not see this. They kept saying, all your tests are great, everything's okay. It was anxiety, they said. Mm-hmm. I have suffered with depression, I've struggled with that, but could that be why they all missed it, do you think?
2: Thank you for sharing that story. It's, um I think, really important thing to discuss. Often when doctors are looking for cardiovascular disease in somebody who's coming in with chest pain, they're looking for that thing that we see a lot in men, that like major right. plaque right. that you can go in and put a stent in and say, okay, we opened it up, everything is better. Microvascular disease is one of those things that is common in women because they don't necessarily have those large obstructive lesions. And as women age and the vessels become less compliant with the lack of the estrogen, the heart, the, the tiny vessels, not the big ones that lead to the heart, but the tiny ones that, that permeate into the muscle, those are the ones that aren't giving the muscle enough blood. So that's what microvascular disease means. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't speak to why the other cardiologists were unable to diagnose you with that, but I'm happy that y- you did find someone who did, and I'm hoping that they were able to start you on a medication regimen or change things around that has made things better for you. Oh, yeah, Somewhat. Okay, that's good. I think that's wonderful. And um, another important thing that, will happen because of that is that you now are developing a relationship with a cardiologist who you trust who knows your symptoms and that also is incredibly important to have so um i'm glad you finally found that person um, hi
3: um just basic question when you say cardiovascular disease Mm -hmm. i mean i think of disease as like tumor what does disease actually
2: mean in this context it means that's a great question because it means a lot of things I, I I use cardiovascular disease in a very broad way to talk about plaques in your arteries. I can use cardiovascular disease to talk about the pumping function of your heart. Um, I use it to talk about strokes. So cardiovascular disease, unless you're specifically isolating heart failure or stroke or athero- atherosclerotic disease, um, it's a it's a very large umbrella Okay, so yes. it can mean
0: I have a question quickly is angina a, a cardiovascular disease or a condition
2: angina is a symptom angina is a symptom of your heart not getting enough blood to feed the muscle so angina is your heart working really hard but not getting enough blood and so it's feeling stressed that's what typical angina is. And angina, is a, is a, do we, do, does it present as a pain? It's a pain in your heart. Typical angina is left-sided chest pain. Sometimes it radiates down the left arm. Sometimes it goes to the back. We also have a classification called atypical angina, which often is what women are presenting with. So they're presenting with shortness of breath. They're presenting with lightheadedness. This, these are atypical symptoms. Okay. Yeah. And it
4: is angina, not angina. Is that what you're it
0: saying?
2: It can be said both ways. You wouldn't <laughs> okay. be wrong.
5: Okay, great.
0: Ella Fitzgerald says angina.
5: <laughs> Before I ask my question, I just wanted to mention the other night, I had been told by my OBGYN during the afternoon that I had an arrhythmia. So I was reading about it on the internet, and as I'm reading about it, I'm feeling this pressure in my chest and freaking out Were all the symptoms of arrhythmia. Mm-hmm. And I live alone, and I started to get more worried, like, should I just run to Cedars, which is a few blocks away, and get an EKG right right away? Mm-hmm. I called the ARP, nurse. There's a nurse, you can just dial a number, and somebody will talk to you, and it was so wonderful. It's yes. such a thing to to have someone, you know she said okay do your blood pressure because i have a cuff and Uh she said take your blood pressure And she, you know she like talked me down from the ledge and and then and then the pain went away and i you know i thought, oh okay that that's cool but because i had been told that by this you know this nurse i i was really worried Mm -hmm. and it's good to know that that is there for me and i I imagine other people have insurance that have nurses on call that will talk to you and i just wanted to put that out there because you know we are women, and we need to know what can we do other than just drive ourselves to the hospital. Yes My question is about statins, Okay. and you mentioned that you, you give them to people, mm-hmm. and I've heard a lot of things that they're bad for you, that you need statin, you need cholesterol in order to have a, you know for your nerves to do their job, for your brain to make connections and so. I know people that have taken statins so much they practically have no cholesterol left in their blood. And I would like you to just address that. I mean, is it really good? Is it bad?
2: Okay. That's a great question. Thank you for bringing it up. Statins are always uh, always a good topic of discussion. So in a lot of cases, when we talk about medications that help you feel better or live longer, statins are in the latter category. In general... Statins, if they're, if they're appropriately prescribed, we know they help people live longer. There are some side effects to statins. So people can have muscle pains with them and we can address that by trying different statins. Um, and there are some other smaller concerns that come up. One of which is sometimes some patients feel like it's affecting their cognition And that's something that I'm very acutely aware of in my practice too with my older adults who I take care of. So um, I, I think about that a lot. As far as your question about how low is too low, there are a lot of studies coming out now that says that there doesn't seem to be a floor. It doesn't seem like the low LDL or the low bad cholesterol does any harm. As far as we know right now. Yes. Even for people
5: who have Alzheimer's in their, like their parents?
2: Even for people who have Alzheimer's in their family history. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't have an answer to that. Um, I think that it's worthwhile bringing up your concerns with your physician. I would only press somebody's LDL very, very low if I was very, very worried about their cardiovascular risk, if they had already had a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. That's when I'm much more aggressive with their cholesterol. In somebody who I'm using statins for primary prevention or they haven't yet had an event, um, I don't necessarily push it as low as I can go. I think it's super stunning and sad how
3: often the answer to all these questions about why don't women why aren 't we more aware of this or that i I, th- I personally think misogyny is the number one women 's health issue, and I wish everyone was talking about that and only that it seems like everything all all qu- all things would be all problems would be solved second um if depression, if we know depression is a factor and there's no data to support that, then joy would be a solution and we don't need any data. Correct? By, like, they're the, it's the same. There doesn't need, any, need to be any proof.
2: If, if I could prescribe joy and that everybody would feel it because I prescribed it, I would totally do it.
3: I mean, they could pursue it knowing it's the solution, <laughs> yeah. since depression is the problem.
2: Depression is, yes. Yeah.
3: And lastly, on the way in the door, I got an email from 23 and Me, which I did and was so happy with all the results, mm-hmm. but apparently I'm in an 18, like I have 18% likelihood to get diabetes too, right?
1: Okay. Is any
3: of this, none of this, nothing heart related showed up in my 23 and Me? Is that because they don't test it the, the, or it's not genetic? None of this is genetic.
2: There are, heart diseases that are genetic. Family history is incredibly important, and there are specific diseases that are based on gene mutations. 23andMe and all of these other uh, uh, DNA companies, they're great, I think, if you're curious about your ancestry. If you're interested in really learning about your disease risk, this is not the way that you're gonna find it. Um, I think that, if you go to a doctor and you have a specific question or a specific history in your family of a certain disease, they can target certain genes, and that is way more informative than the 23andMe. Yeah.
6: I had rheumatic fever when I was a child, and I was in hospital for about three months. Mm-hmm. My father had rheumatic fever when he was a teenager, mm-hmm. and my grandfather on my mother's side had rheumatic fever when he was younger. My father had a heart attack when he was 42, and my grandfather had many strokes and ultimately died from, from a stroke. Mm-hmm. So what do I do? Because thank goodness, at this point, I'm, I've had babies and I've had myself checked while I was ha- having them and I was mm-hmm. pregnant. My heart seems to be good,
2: but this does not bode well. The thing that rheumatic fever increases the risk for from a cardiac perspective is, valvular disease so the thing that your all of your doctors need to know that you have a history of rheumatic fever and the thing that they need to listen for when they listen to you is murmurs they need to really be on the lookout for your heart making sounds like that tell them that the valves are not working as perfectly as they could because that is the thing that I would be on the lookout for you. Would
6: you recommend that a person like me should have a cardio, cardiologist or just work with a regular doctor? Because to date, I have not done that.
2: I think that it is worthwhile for you to see a cardiologist one time and to have them evaluate you okay. because of your family history and because of your history of rheumatic fever. Okay. Hi, my name is Shelley. Thank you very much. This has been really informative. Great.
4: So here's my question. Is it possible in using exercise, deep connection, and a good diet to reverse hereditary heart
1: disease?
2: You mean to improve your risk based on your family history, or is there already disease that you know of in your body? The former, the first Absolutely. All of those things, all of those preventative health measures will reduce your risk for cardiovascular disease, especially in light of your family history. If everybody with a strong family history could do all of those things, I would be thrilled. So so you can make a dramatic difference. I think that you can absolutely reduce your risk. I would have to know a little bit more about what the family history was Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to say whether or not it would be dramatic or not dramatic. Interesting, right, that's a longer conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.
7: (laughs) Hello, thank you for your time and expertise today. Um, My question is in regards to the environment. um, Ah. It's getting very polluted Ah. um, here in the Western world as well as as Africa where I'm from. Mm -hmm. um, There's pretty much no regulations surrounding how things are managed in terms of air quality. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering if there's any correlation to um, poor environmental care to heart-related diseases?
2: There does seem to be a correlation with an increased risk for plaque buildup in areas with higher pollution. Yes.
7: Um, what about race wise? Are There some races that tend to have higher um, risk of um, having heart diseases. Because I know there are some diseases that we know are very particular to some races of others.
2: With respect to pollution and the cardiovascular disease Based on race, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. But in general? In general, yeah. In general, um, African-Americans and Hispanics are at higher risk for cardiovascular disease in general because they are they have higher risk factor profiles. Uh, they are at increased risk for diabetes. They're, they have higher blood pressure. Their cholesterol is generally higher. And so because of all of these risks, they are at higher risk for cardiovascular disease in general. Also, the unfortunate thing is that in a lot of these communities, the education outreach doesn't necessarily get there. So um, so there are, a lot of, there are a lot of challenges and barriers that we're really trying to overcome to reach out to, yeah. to these different communities.
3: I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. Um, being someone with heart disease, um, and I thought about what you said, that we want to tell stories that people can relate to. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of making sure of taking medication as prescribed? And the reason I bring that up is women are a classic for making sure the kids' homework is done, dinner's on the table at t- on time, we make the PTA meeting, And then all of a sudden you realize you didn't take your morning metoprolol and it's 11 o'clock. And then you still have to take your 10 o'clock and you say, well, screw it, I took it earlier. And the reason I want you to address that is I myself ended up back in the hospital in AFib with taking care of everybody else but myself. So I think that that's something I didn't know until after I've been on statins that I should take them at night instead of in the morning. And I'm a nurse with
2: 40 years experience. So this is a question that I think about a lot because in general, in my patient population, patients who are 75 and 80 years or older, they are not on one or two medications, they're on 10. They're on 12, they're on 15. So talk about having trouble remembering to take your medications, it's hard. And compliance, adherence, whatever you wanna call it, is incredibly low, you are not alone. At all, I just read a statistic that people, thirty percent, only thirty percent of people who take statins take them as prescribed. Wow, that's really low. Um, Is that a literacy rate issue, or is that just bad directions? Neither. It's it's human. It's human nature. Thirty. Wow. It's human nature to a lot of times i mean i could talk about this for a long time but a lot of times people who are taking medications don't want to take it because it reminds them that they're sick you know it reminds them that there's something wrong with them so let's forget that for the day right but um, depending on the reason you're taking the medication for heart rate control or for anticoagulation or for some very important things some medicines are more crucial right to take regularly than others and What I would say is if you find you're having difficulty, run through the list with your doctor to say, if I forget some, what are the ones that I absolutely cannot forget? I have kind of a two-part question that's related. Um, I,
4: I remember running with someone that I worked with a long time ago and we did the stairs in Santa Monica and she wasn't an athlete. And she said, oh, my heart, my heart is pumping. And I said, that's good. And she's like, oh no, I could have a heart attack. So that's part of it. And the other part, and the other part is you were talking about depression and how that works uh, with a troubled heart and you used the word intervention. And you didn't say what that intervention was. Is that pharmaceutical intervention? Because I know years ago, I read that there was a study done in England that actually physical exercise, so that pumping heart, works a lot better than pharmaceutical.
2: Exercise is the best medicine for everything, I think. it, uh, But that's a separate conversation. Intervention specifically in the depression can be cognitive behavioral therapy, it can be Pharmaceutical, like a, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or some medication, as long as the mood is improving. Whatever you're doing with the intervention, as long as the mood is improving, I think the outcomes will be better overall. As far, yes. But exercise isn't included in that intervention? Um, not in the particular studies so far. Okay. Um, Especially with respect to depression and cardiovascular disease. I don't know the literature as well for people with depression who then are encouraged to exercise. I, I don't know. I can't quote that. But, for I, you. but in
4: the meantime, it's okay to run real hard and get your heart to hurt. And in the meantime,
2: good. in general, exercise is healthy, an increase in your heart rate is healthy, an increase in your blood pressure is healthy. These are normal physiologic responses, normal body responses to exercise. But that won't cause a heart attack, right? In general, it will not cause a heart attack. For people who have not done a lot of physical activity and are all of a sudden going to start to do a lot, they have to sort of ramp up to a level, right? So I would not recommend getting up and running a marathon after having sat on the couch for five years, right? It, I think that you need to know your body. <laughs> you need to know your body a little bit because there may be signs when you're exercising that you're exercising too hard or that your heart isn't able to handle it. So you you do need to know your body and if there are any questions I would say visit your doctor visit the cardiologist visit the primary care doctor to say is it really is it safe for me to exercise in general the answer will be yes
3: just about cholesterol I know there's good and there's bad cholesterol Mm -hmm. so would you so you said the, the bad cholesterol can't go too low but is there a way to increase the good cholesterol and can that go too high
2: some medications can increase the good cholesterol we even though the marker of the good cholesterol is going up, it doesn't seem to improve outcomes. So it doesn't seem to prolong life. So the marker is better, but it isn't working the same way or something is just not exactly the same. So um, we don't necessarily, we don't usually recommend medications to increase the good cholesterol or the HDL. What are uh, some of the uh, things that you can do for, uh, to,
8: decrease the bad cholesterol?
2: Exercise?
3: Food or, or whatever. Oatmeal? What, whatever.
2: Exercise is great. Exercise will reduce the bad cholesterol. So physical activity will reduce the bad cholesterol. Um, watching your diet, decreasing the amount of cholesterol that you're eating will tend to reduce the cholesterol in your blood. There is a large family genetic component to this, though. So even if you are incredibly healthy, that woman who I spoke about before who had the plaque in the carotid artery and the plaque in some of the arteries in her heart, she's a vegan, and she still has elevated cholesterol. So, so there, there are family traits that you can't always overcome by the exercise and the diet. Great. I mean, not great, but... Great question.
8: Speaker, thank you. Oh, sorry. oh, we have a doctor here. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, I wrote a lot. I probably could have written three pages here. Um, I've been an RN over thirty years, and I think right. <laughs> another one. <laughs> I, uh, but unfortunately, you know, there's not been a lot of education. The RNs are not educating, the physicians aren't educating. It's been very frustrating, actually. What about inflammation involved in the body? Inflammation, you know, I think there are many physicians who look at inflammation as, and they'll give you a steroid, but I think that inflammation, body inflammation, possibly from too much acidity Mm -hmm. and not eating maybe more alkaline um, can cause uh, inflammation in the body, which can cause other imbalances or eases and so i have a thing about that and i was wondering if taking resveratrol which i've taken for many many years as a liquid Mm -hmm. um and not necessarily drinking a glass of red wine every night um is uh, a good preventative because we talk about supplements and i think there are specific supplements like d3 like magnesium you know magnesium i think is very important Um, And these things, I really think, need to get out into the public. We need more education, and we need this to come from the doctors and the nurses and the people in the medical Western community. What are some of your feelings about all these studies that come out? It can make you crazy. You don't know what to eat, you know? It's just...
2: Um, There are a lot of things I'd like to address there. Let's start with the studies. And then we'll go to the inflammation. Okay. Um, I got a text message from my mom last week, and she said, so I can't eat eggs anymore? <laughs> because <laughs> it just came th- out. the study just came out that said that people who eat a certain number of eggs have a higher level of cholesterol and, and adverse outcomes. My feeling on the studies is that they don't tell the whole story. And, and I really believe that everything in moderation is the way to go. I don't like if you're eating 4 eggs a day, yeah, probably that's going to be a problem, but if you're having a couple eggs a week, that is going to be beneficial overall. Um I so I I am very slow to to pick up on the the studies that say, "Oh, Mushrooms are going to prevent alzheimer's disease or we were talking about beans that are going to prevent cardiovascular disease. I think there's just um I I just think that there's not enough Information and I don't think the studies are of good enough quality. There are some studies that are Better quality. There was a study about the mediterranean diet. So olive oil Fish, lots of fruits and veg- veggies, a little bit of alcohol—that does seem to have benefits that we can't fully explain. Um, so, I do believe that some studies are better than others, but I don't like the ones that are specifically isolating specific foods. So sometimes people's risk factors, based on their BMI and their cholesterol and their blood pressure, they're sort of borderline. Like some, they're. Maybe they're at higher risk, but maybe they're at lower risk. And and measuring inflammation can help us determine who's at higher risk or who's at lower risk. It's it's something that we know is for sure related to cardiovascular disease. People with autoimmune diseases that are inflama- inflammatory are certainly at risk. So rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, these things um, really do increase the risk for heart disease because of the inflammation. Moderate, mild to moderate amounts of alcohol. Um, drinking responsibly does seem to decrease inflammation a little bit. Aspirin is big in the news right now. Um, we use Aspirin has been used traditionally for two different reasons. One is for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, and one is for secondary prevention. So these two things are different. Primary prevention means that you don't have any overt cardiovascular disease. You've never had a heart attack. You've never had a stroke. You don't have obstructive plaques anywhere. But your risks because of your cholesterol and your blood pressure and your family history maybe are higher. So people have added aspirin in order to reduce the risk of heart attack and stroke. Let me talk about secondary prevention and then we'll say what the new guidelines say. Secondary prevention is if you have had a heart attack or if you have had a stroke or if you do have disease that we know about in the vasculature of your body, aspirin is given as secondary prevention in order to prevent another event. What we have learned recently is that aspirin for primary prevention does not seem to be reducing these primary outcomes. So that it does not seem to be reducing heart attack and stroke and death. And the recommendations just changed. So for people who are taking aspirin for primary prevention, are they no longer need to be taking it. People who have diabetes are a separate, <laughs> slightly separate category because their risk for cardiovascular disease is a little bit higher than the average population. Um, but in people with diabetes, aspirin does seem to lower the event rate, so lower the events of heart attacks and strokes, but the bleeding risk is equally as high. So your benefit of the heart attack and stroke reduction is counterbalanced by the risk of these bleeds. So you you should have a conversation with your physician if you're a diabetic and on aspirin for, for primary prevention.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Dina Goldwater. You have been... So wonderful. I want to thank uh, co-producer, uh, Alicia Sedwick, and everybody who came out. Um, please visit pausepodcast.com. We have our original podcast from March 3rd up. This will be up in a couple weeks. April 14th, in a, actually in a new venue, um, we're having a mindful e- um, event to talk about the, the neurology and the psychology and the spirituality um, of menopause specifically. And we have a doctor of 30 years who focuses on this beautiful conversation. So please join us April 14th. And thank you again. And please stay in community. We have a Facebook page. Of course, we have a meetup. Um, and just I just appreciate all of you being here. It really makes a difference. And those of you who are listening in your car or in your bedroom or at work, you have community. You have people around you to support you. Thank you so much. Don't forget to pause for health and take good care. Bye-bye.